0: The primary threat
1: was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively
0: formed penetrators. Suicide bombs.
1: And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240. And the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the Spear. My guest on this episode is Major Jordan Terry. Jordan, thanks so much for taking some time out of your schedule and and joining me on the Spear.
1: Thank you so much for having me, John.
0: So I want to, you know, I wonder if if we can kind of begin the way that I, I typically like to is if you can give listeners a little bit of information about your military background, what brought you into the army, uh, what kind of jobs you've done.
1: Sure. I'm a graduate uh, of West Point, 2009, and I commissioned as an Army aviator. Uh, I I was in high school when 9-11 happened, and I was already generally oriented on going into the military in some fashion. But when when 9-11 happened and and we saw the the invasion in Iraq... um, at that point, I was very, very um, decided that the military was the right place for me and and I wanted to pursue leadership opportunities in the military. So that's why I began to, to really explore West Point with a higher degree of seriousness. And uh, I entered West Point in 2005 and, and again, commissioned in 2009 as an army aviator. Uh, for the for the next 18 months or so, I was at flight school where uh, I finished up as as an OH-58 Delta Kiowa warrior uh, scout pilot. Uh, immediately after flight school, I, I was deployed to Afghanistan after a very brief period in Fort Drum, and uh, my unit was already there. And that, I think that'll be the subject of today's talk. But I've also served in, in staff roles, usually in, in operations, the S3 shop at the, the squadron as well as, as the division level um, over over two tours of duty in RC East in Afghanistan. Uh, with with the Kiowas divestiture from the Army's aviation inventory, I, I commanded at Fort Rucker in an air traffic control company, where I transitioned to uh, Blackhawk. So I'm qualified on the Blackhawk, and uh, that'll be that'll be my future after I leave here uh, teaching at West Point. Uh, after company command, uh, I had the opportunity to pursue my MBA at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business, and now I teach uh, operations management and leadership here at West Point.
0: You know, it's, so it sounds like you had, um, you know, you knew by the time you were kind of 14, 15 years old that you wanted to pursue a military career. You knew pretty soon after that, that, you know, West Point was, it was, a, uh, maybe an attractive option because it would give you some leadership opportunities. Um, how soon did you know that you wanted to fly?
1: I actually went into West Point, um, fully intending on being an army aviator. The the local liaison officer for West Point admissions was an Apache pilot. And I said, you know, that seems like a really tough challenge and I've always wanted to fly. So, so I'll pursue that. And as, as many West Point cadets uh, do, I changed my mind 15 times over four years of, you know, going back and forth from, from infantry to armor to military intelligence, back to aviation, to medical service, to be a medevac pilot. And, um, Eventually, I really fell in love with, with the problems that Army aviators get to solve. Um, problems that are highly technical also require a lot of t- tactical expertise and, and have a really unique human component, having to integrate the unique skills of crew chiefs and maintainers, our expert warrant officer aviators, as well as you know the leadership and the guidance that the commissioned officers can offer to an aviation unit. So um, definitely uh, felt comfortable with the aviation mission set and the purpose of doing whatever we absolutely can uh, to support the soldier or the marine or the sailor, whoever's on the ground.
0: Given that you wanted uh, that, you knew that you wanted to uh, be an aviation officer. Um, pretty quickly, I guess, before you even showed up at West Point, did you ever look into any of the other services? Because you know, I talked to a lot of people who say I only ever wanted to be infantry, so it was only ever going to be the Army or the Marine Corps. Um, or, but you know, aviation—you can fly in any of the four services on a variety of platforms. Did you consider uh, other options?
1: You know, John, that's funny because something that we do in, in aviation is we manage risk. And when I was looking at, you know, going to, going to, going to college or pursuing a, an academy or pursuing service, I didn't manage risk very well. So I actually only applied to, to West Point. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a letter of assurance, so I was pretty sure that I was getting in. But I wasn't really interested, as important as, as naval aviation is, as important as, as the Air Force is in, in its missions. Um, I really wanted that down low, um, low, low to the ground, heavily integrated in the ground concept. I, I, I wanted to fight from the aircraft as opposed to just fly in the aircraft. And um, so I, I know that may have seemed naive at the time, but, but I think it was more accurate uh, than I truly expected it to be uh, as, as things panned out with my early career.
0: So I'm sensing kind of a pattern here, where you knew you wanted to pursue a military career, you knew that you wanted to uh, go to West Point, you knew that you wanted to fly. So the next question: Were you certain that you wanted to fly Kiowas?
1: That's that's always a a very tough challenge that that uh, causes a lot of anxiety as as young Army aviators move their way through flight school. I think all the, the the platforms would have been you know fantastic, and I was happy to just happy to be at Fort Rucker and happy to be. Uh, pursuing you know, earning my wings, but uh, I, I really wanted to explore kind of the culture or what I thought might be the culture in these different types of of units, and and I knew that all of the Kiowa units were were air cavalry units, units that that carried that um, carried that kind of aggressive mentality of of getting out there, finding the enemy, fixing the enemy, and then doing whatever we could to to support. Uh, not only the soldiers on the ground, but but also the other airframes, um, you know, calling in Apaches, um, communicating with field artillery, uh, really serving as a battle space integrator. And um, I, I felt that, that that culture really appealed to me. Uh, at one point in time, I was really, you know, trying to decide between maybe Blackhawks or maybe Kiowas. And, and I had to ask myself, what, if I was that soldier on the ground, um, what would I, what would be the worst situation I could possibly be in? And I, I thought to myself, you know, probably being wounded, but I'm not a med service officer. So I'm not going to go, uh, be a medevac pilot. And I said, you know, the, the scariest thing that maybe I could experience on the ground was being shot at or being engaged and not knowing where that was coming from, having an enemy out there and not really knowing And And so that's really why I, I pivoted towards, um, moving into the scout uh reconnaissance and security role to kind of satisfy that that most anxious moment that that i expected uh if i was that soldier on the ground
0: okay so when you showed up to flight school you had a pretty good sense that kiowa was what you were looking for looking at
1: Uh, not really uh again kind of like um i believe it or not, the night that I branched aviation, uh, the U S army actually canceled the program for the ARH 70 Arapaho. So, uh, that's why I kind of said, you know, we'll, we'll, see how flight school pans out. So I was pretty open to all the airframes, John, but, um, I, I eventually settled on Kiowa as being, being the right fit for me, um, at the time.
0: Do you get a chance to fly all of those, uh, all of the different, uh, helicopters at flight school?
1: No, you don't. Uh, which, which is kind of, which is kind of tough because it's a lot of, um, you know, buying something sight unseen. Um, so you get to see a lot of them flying overhead, but, um, you don't really get to, uh, outside of maybe some simulator time, you don't really get to experience it.
0: Okay. So you finished flight school then, um, in, what is it about late 2010?
1: This is, I finished uh, flight school on April 7th of 2011.
0: Okay, 2011, and your first duty station was Fort Drum. Is that correct? That's correct. What unit?
1: Six uh, Six Cavalry. So, Six Squadron, Six Cav- Cavalry Regiment, which is part of the 10th Combat Aviation Brigade, Fort Drum.
0: And you said that when you showed up at Drum, that they were already deployed. When did you get your When did you get your orders to that unit? How soon before you got there did you know? Hey, this unit is already deployed.
1: I found out that I was going to be assigned to Fort Drum. I think in in uh, December, so still with about three months left of flight school, and uh, my my wife and I, you know, that wasn't at the top of our list, um, which it may make it, it probably should have been. Fort Drum was great, but um, we found out that we were going to Fort Drum, and you know, I did some research and I realized that that they were already deployed, and um, so I actually reached out to. Um, a point of contact that I was able to find uh, at the unit who put me in touch with uh, the troop commander uh, that I was going to be assigned to and they made it very very clear at that moment that as soon as I finished up flight school that I needed to hurry uh, and get get over to Afghanistan because they needed they needed aviators. Um, the mission was tough the uh, operating environment was intense and they needed um, they needed additional people. Um, I also had a very interesting run-in one night at flight school, uh, while you're not, while your partner's flying, you kind of sit around at the stage field waiting for your turn to fly. And, um, in walked a, this is probably at 10 o'clock at night, but a a CW two walked in who was wearing a a Fort drum patch, 10th mountain division patch. And, uh, so I, I introduced myself to him and he, he was back at Fort Rucker on TDY and explained that he was from the same unit that I was going to be going to. And, um, he and I had a very good conversation about what I could expect going to combat. And he said, you know, our units in combat every single day, every single day is a fight. So, you know, if they tell you here at flight school, the counterinsurgency is this low intensity thing where, you know, some days it's, it's really boring and slow. He said, you know, for us, we're, we're getting into a fight every day and you, you need to take the rest of this flight school experience very, very seriously. Don't slack off because we're going to need you.
0: And I have an effect on you.
1: It absolutely did. I mean, it was it was a not that I didn't take flight school seriously before, but it was it was a reality check that this, you know, education world that was West Point and then flight school was coming to an end. And I was I was going to get the opportunity to, to do my duty and put my put my skills to the test. So I had a very good uh, understanding of kind of what I was getting myself into.
0: OK, so uh, so you get to you get to Fort Drum. April, with April, 2011, with the, you know, the expectation that you're not going to spend very much time there before you get uh, sent off to Afghanistan. How long before you did, before you left Fort Drum?
1: I moved, uh, moved my wife to Louisville, Kentucky. I was at Fort Drum for, for a few weeks and I was in Afghanistan by, uh, by, I think T- around the 20th, uh, 25th of May. So, uh, my, my squadron was stationed, uh, in, at Jalalabad airfield, which is in, uh, Nangahar province on the far, uh, Eastern side of Afghanistan, which at the time was in regional command East.
0: And was the squadron's mission to support, um, ground forces specifically in that area, the, in the area around Jabad, um, uh, in the sort of mountainous RC East?
1: Th- that's correct. Our squadron was a, a multifunctional task force, meaning we had Chinooks, we had Apaches, Blackhawks, Medevac, as well as Kiowas, with all the the associated support units. And our job was to provide aviation support to a ground brigade task force uh, that was operating in into uh, KL, which is Nuristan, Nangahar, Kunar, and Logman provinces. So that's right. So generally, uh, the far eastern Afghanistan of, of Afghanistan with the provinces around uh the the Kabul River, the Kunar River, the Pesh River Valley, uh the Alangar Valley. So a lot of very um you know kinetic areas uh to be operating historically.
0: And so you said that you had had some contact with your troop commander um uh, uh beforehand. So when you get there, what is that what is a a troop sort of, how is that structured? You know, how different is it from, a, you know, what we typically think of as a company?
1: Sure. So our troop had, uh, was composed of 10, uh, generally 10, 10 Kiowa helicopters because we were task organized. We actually had, had donated a couple of our helicopters and crews to a, uh, a, a composite, uh, Company at Bagram Airfield that had that had a platoon of Kiowas and a platoon of Apaches, so we were down to eight helicopters with the associated crews and crew chiefs, uh, which which amounted to about thirty or thirty-five people uh, in the troop, uh, composed of two platoons. So I was I was the uh, the uh, the second platoon leader, um, which is really interesting because at West Point you know you have your platoon and you're standing in front of the formation of your platoon and you go out and you fight missions uh, as your platoon. In the aviation world, especially operating 24 hours a day um, with, with continuous operations and continuing maintenance, the troop really fights as a, a troop unit. So there weren't really, you know, there was never a moment where we said, hey, second platoon, you have this mission. It was really a, a team effort every single day to be able to put uh, five teams of, of Kiowas in the air. So we were we had eight, eight helicopters, and uh, we, were, we were putting up five teams of two, Uh, just with our troop every day. So a really high operational tempo. And, and my role as the lieutenant was to uh, help the troop commander uh, manage personnel, manage supply, and then uh, do as much as I could, like any junior aviator to, uh, to learn how to operate and contribute in the cockpit.
0: And so how long was it going to be before you were actually up in the air?
1: So by the t- when, I, when I got to Afghanistan, um, from the time that I got there until my first flight was, was certainly less than a week. Uh, I think it was four or five days, which was long enough for me to kind of adjust my rest, get fitted for, for some of my equipment, uh, take some academic classes um, specific to Afghanistan, and, and then start to fly. So for the first two weeks or so, all of my my training flights were were there on the airfield, essentially doing the same things that I had done at Fort Rucker uh, as part of a typical aviation readiness level progression. So uh, it's kind of like your driver's permit. You know, even though you have your permit, you still have to drive with with a parent. So I was still flying with an instructor pilot uh, around the airfield for about, for about two weeks or so.
0: Okay. So I guess the story that you're going to share is from one of your first days actually flying in Afghanistan. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Yes.
0: So, what was the um, what was the mission that day?
1: Sure. So, I had just been signed off as readiness level two, which means that I'm not a fully qualified mission pilot, but I am authorized to fly on uh, missions as long as I'm flying with with an instructor pilot. So that day, um, we actually I was assigned to a, to a team of uh, there were four pilots, so two two aircraft, and I was flying with our troop standardization pilot. Uh, then uh, chief one officer 3 sasha wellenruther uh our mission that day uh, was actually non existent for for once we actually did not have a, um, a a concept of the operation from the ground force to go check in with a ground force provide them you know security or reconnaissance so it actually worked out well that day that um, sasha cw3 wellenruther said that you know let's just go ahead and knock out your your local area orientation your lao which is a requirement to continue progression. So so that day, our mission was actually to go out and show me uh, the different refuel points, the friendly uh, outposts and, and forward operating bases inside of our area of responsibility. So we were essentially going to go and do uh, about an hour and a half flight up the entire Kunar River Valley, pointing out some of those key locations, uh, landing at the refuel points, things like that. Uh, and then we were going to come back and, uh, and kind of sit at the ready for the remainder of our shift.
0: Okay. Um, so can you give it just to orient, I guess, listeners, um, you described this area. What is the Kiowa's range? You know, how far apart are these refuel points and the various COPs and, um, and outposts that you're, that you're kind of responsible for having that are within your AO?
1: Sure. Gener- generally, the, the refuel points, the rearming, uh, so the forward arming refuel points, the FARPs, were generally around 20 to 30 minutes apart as in terms of uh, flight time. So 20 to 30 minutes um, you'd be able to go from uh, Jalalabad to Asadabad, which is at the mouth of the Pesh River Valley where at the where that meets the Kunar River. Hmm. and then proceeding further up north of the river there was uh, Fab Bostik uh, in the vicinity of Nari, which was uh, which was our northernmost uh, forward arming and refuel point. So generally we could fly for around an hour and a half before we would have to, to land again for, for, uh, for refuel generally.
0: So is that what you did then? You just, you took off and flew around for an hour and a half. We, we
1: did. So we, we took off just like every day we went and we, we test fired our weapon systems, uh, at the, uh, test fire range just to, to make sure that our weapons were operating properly. I was what
0: what kind of weapons does a Kiowa carry?
1: Sure. Uh, a a Kiowa was, uh, capable of being equipped with a combination of Hellfire missiles, which we really didn't fly with too much in Afghanistan, uh, 2.75 inch Hydra rockets, uh, as well as a 50 caliber machine gun. That day, our lead helicopter was equipped with uh, a rocket pod of seven rockets, as well as a 50 caliber machine gun. I was in the trail aircraft uh, with uh, Mr. Wellenruther serving as the air mission commander, and we were equipped with two rocket pods, seven uh, rockets apiece uh, of 2.75 inch rockets. Okay. So as we, uh, after we conducted our test fire, uh, we proceeded up and we, uh, landed at Assadabad, which is, um, again, at the mouth of the Pesh river valley. Uh, we executed a landing there. We took off. We, then I, I flew, uh, the, the next landing, not as well as Mr. Wellenreuther. Um, and, uh, just to get oriented on the, kind of the traffic pattern, the radio calls associated with that location. Uh, we topped off on fuel, and then we proceeded uh, north. The radio, the radio uh, that day was generally quiet. Um, for what I had heard, generally June is a very um, you know busy month in terms of it being the fighting season. Um, so the, the radios were, were quiet as we checked in with these forward operating bases moving uh, further north up the Kunar Valley. We landed at Fob Bostic uh, again. Did another traffic pattern just for my orientation um, took on, uh, again, topped off on fuel since we were there. And then, uh, we proceeded back down the river. Um, and we were going to be mission complete, uh, at that point back at Joe
0: Okay. So then on your, on your way back from Fob Bostic to JBAD, I understand, uh, there was a change.
1: There was. So the way that, uh, we, we were proceeding back at about a thousand feet, which, in, in the river valley, the, the mountains on each side are thousands of feet high. The, the valley snakes through through these mountains in a way that oftentimes you can't see past the next bend in the river. Sometimes you can't even pick up radio traffic around the next bend in the river. And so we were proceeding uh, south. We had passed Cop Cur- Purtle King. We had passed uh, Bari and, uh as well as Cop Monte. And we were proceeding south to, to Asadabad and we turned a corner uh, in the river and it was like uh it it was a surreal moment as we were several kilometers away but i could still i could see smoke rising and i could see explosions along the road uh in in the distance um at that point in in the river uh it was basically the river and then going immediately west of the river there was a road which was msr california very narrow two-lane road that that ran the length of the Kunar River Valley. That was our major lifeline in that that area of operations. And then right on the other side of the road from the river was mountain, steep mountain. And as we got closer, we began to to communicate as a team of of aircraft trying to figure out what was going on on the ground. And we saw that it was uh, was not US vehicles. Um, They were not US vehicles. It, It was an Afghan platoon that was under heavy fire. Um, specifically with heavy machine guns as we started to pick up the sound, as well as with RPGs um, based on based on the explosions uh, and the smoke. Um, so at that point in time, we began we picked up a, a fairly high orbit as we began to develop the situation and try to report to the nearest friendly force, which was at cop um, near Asmar, uh, the village of Asmar. Uh, what we were seeing on the ground. Um, so for me, being a, a very, very junior aviator, this is the moment where I kind of felt a lump in my throat, saying, "Oh my gosh, this is this is real now." Where you don't just see the explosions, you can feel the explosions. You can, you know, you can you don't just see the smoke, you can you can smell the smoke rising from a burning vehicle. And so, uh, over the next probably two minutes or so, uh, we began to develop the situation, and try to understand where. Uh, the Afghan forces might be, try to understand where the enemy might be attacking from and communicate that to the nearest force.
0: Okay. So then what happens next?
1: So um, after we were reporting up uh, to uh, the, the company headquarters that was located at Comp Monte, uh, which was uh, Bravo Company, second of the 27th Infantry Regiment out of, uh, out of Hawaii, uh, their call sign was Bastard. Um, they notified us that an American QRF platoon uh, was en route. So they were driving south on the road. Uh, they were partnered with this Afghan company, uh, a platoon of which was, was being ambushed. And so this American platoon was essentially rushing to, to the kill zone to try to allow that Afghan unit to consolidate, uh, break contact, recover their vehicles if possible, and move to a safe location. As we um, so we began to transition, uh, the lead aircraft still maintained uh, a focus on the the engagement area, so the kill zone. Meanwhile, our aircraft began to orient on trying to find um, the U.S. convoy moving south on MSR California. Um, we were able to uh, identify that that unit. Uh, and pass them contact information for our lead aircraft. And at that moment, we were able to open up communication and provide that ground, that U.S. ground force with um, situational awareness of, you know, as best we could understand of where the Afghans are, where the enemy might be, uh, and so on.
0: Okay. So you're at this point kind of, um, you know, Orbiting or hovering above this, this QRF convoy as it gets closer to the Afghans who presumably are still taking pretty intense fire.
1: They, they were it had it had actually slackened a little bit and we could see the the Afghan forces starting to move um, you know move between their vehicles uh, maybe looking at damage or, or potentially uh, providing first aid. Again, we didn't have communications with with this Afghan patrol, but the moment that the U.S. platoon um, kind of drove into the vicinity in the kill zone, they immediately take, began taking uh, fire that was, that was more intense. Um, so being able to reflect on it now, nine years later, you know, I, I, my thought is that the, the enemy forces were trying to essentially lure an American platoon into an ambush by attacking an Afghan platoon. Um, and so the, the, the fire began to to intensify the moment that that American platoon drove in and began to conduct link up procedures with the Afghan platoon.
0: And so at that point, you know, what is for you, for, for both aircraft in the air, what's what, what's kind of support can you provide? What's your role? So,
1: so our role immediately was to try to provide that ground force that is that is moving into a situation that's largely unknown. They know that an American or an Afghan platoon is being is being ambushed. They know that it's an intense situation. But this this unit's only been in country for for maybe four weeks after their uh, replacement after they 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 took over from the outgoing unit, and so their understanding of the situation is is only maybe slightly better than than mine even um on on some of my first missions so uh, they're moving into this our, our biggest goal is to try to understand and try to communicate to the u.s force where the afghans are located at this point we you know the u.s forces are trying to return fire because it's, again it's beginning to intensify and so we're trying to provide the u.s forces uh with with an understanding of where their afghan counterparts actually are we don't want to you know we don't want any sort of uh fratricide with with our partnered force so um helping them understand and conducting friendly reconnaissance not necessarily looking for the enemy um but at a certain point in time because of the intensity of the fire um the us force we began to to discuss and uh coordinate uh engaging targets ourselves to be able to suppress the enemy uh known and impossible possible enemy locations um to, to attempt to uh, allow the U.S. force to consolidate those Afghans and, and move out of that kill zone. So our, our lead aircraft began really close coordination with, um, with the U.S. forces. Um, we began to drop down in altitude because now we had a better idea of, of who was on the ground. Um, but at that time, you know, the U.S. force um, began to inform us that, that we were being engaged um, and that the enemy was using um, PKMs, uh potentially rpgs trying to move other other weapon systems to engage the helicopters to try to shoot down a helicopter so at that point you know the the other three pilots again i'm i'm this is very new for me but they're they're discussing the pros and cons of you know do we with this heightened threat do we drop down in altitude and increase our risk uh with the potential benefit of identifying additional enemy uh, locations to be able to engage those ourselves or or help, help the friendly force on the ground engage those targets. Um, so due to the intensity of the fire, uh, our lead aircraft began to really, really drop down in altitude, uh, attempting to, to draw fire away from the road, away from the friendly forces, um, drawing fire onto themselves. And we began trying to pick up on, on where that fire was coming from so that we could um, develop engagements uh, with the friendly force.
0: And could you see where the fire was coming from we could we could see
1: muzzle flashes so um, the way that the terrain you know a lot probably people I've talked to back home think Afghanistan's this this you know wide desert and in the Kunar River Valley it looks a lot like you know some of the arid mountain regions that we would see in the western US with Uh, A lot of there's a lot of vegetation. It's dry, but there's a lot of vegetation. There was a lot of cover and concealment for the enemy forces. So a lot of times all we would see were um, pockets of of muzzle flashes coming out of coming out of the mountain at certain points, very, very close to the road uh, where the U.S. forces, where the Afghan forces were. At that point, the U.S. forces uh, began to actually move into the move up the hillside uh, attempting to, to engage, uh, the Afghan forces from a position of better cover, not being so open and exposed on the road. So using their vehicle mounted weapon systems to kind of move, uh, move to cover them as they moved into, uh, the hillside. Um, at that point, it was like stirring a hornet's nest. Um, the friendly ground force, um, the, the fire again began to intensify the, uh, it's hard to explain what, what fear sounds like on the radio, but we could begin to feel you know, hear fear coming across some of these friendly radio transmissions. Um, and are you
0: talking directly to the platoon leader or are you also able to listen to their, uh, their platoon net?
1: So we're, we're talking to, we're, we're tied into their platoon net. So okay. our lead aircraft is talking directly to the platoon leader. We're listening in on the platoon net. Um, we're, our aircraft is is passing updates not only to our operations center but also to, um, also to the battal- the friendly battalion, so that company's battalion headquarters uh, as well as the company. Um, at that point, one, when we started to feel the intensity of the engagement again escalating with our dismounts moving away from the road into the, you know, onto the hillside, um, that was when you know, despite maybe my inexperience, despite um, all of us in both you know in both aircrafts being very task saturated, um, that was where we could kind of feel that the situation was going to get worse. Um, and so um, by this time we had we had actually engaged, conducted suppression engagements at several targets uh, on the hillside. Um, but the fire had not had not subsided. We were trying to keep our fire, you know relatively distant from friendly forces. But that wasn't having um, a great effect um, on, you know, on the enemy, uh, so to speak. They were they were still maintaining that engagement against the friendlies. So um, we began to to try to navigate that by again moving in closer, um, trying to get more precision with understanding where friendlies were, understanding where the enemy was, um, so that we could make those those engagements count.
0: Okay. And so were you able to, um, to at some point successfully engage, uh, the enemy forces that were fight that were essentially now fighting on the mountainside with, with the U S forces, correct?
1: That that's right. That's right. Um, at, at a certain point in time, because we were able, because of the, the way the terrain and the vegetation is, um, we, we just had no ability to continue to engage. We, we knew we were being shot at, um, you know, the friendly force that you know was letting us know that we were being shot at but we couldn't necessarily put any rounds down because we didn't have a, an accurate view of where the friendly forces were so they actually came up with a novel idea and uh i don't know who was responsible for it but they said our frontline trace moving up the mountain is marked with with an afghan soldier who's wearing a, a vs-17 panel as a cape so vs-17 panel is an orange uh, has a large orange side and a large pink side and it's yeah. used a lot of times for for marking for maybe a landing zone or a medevac and there we saw him you know there was an afghan soldier bravely you know kind of marching up this this hillside with a, a, yeah, a orange cape so so at that point we were able to kind of see the the friendly frontline trace um and by that moment we, we were starting to get really low on fuel so uh we we moved in for a really close engagement and we couldn't see him uh, if they weren't firing, we we really couldn't see them. And with our rockets and our 50 cal, even if we could see the muzzle flashes, because of the way that the rocks and the terrain was, uh, we might not have great effects on that enemy. So, um, so we expended all of our ordnance trying to um, allow the the friendly force to to break contact um, at that point. And then we we went back to the nearest refuel point, uh, which was Assadabad. For for me, leaving that friendly force. In contact, having to leave them exposed without any sort of aviation support was um, unexpectedly heart wrenching. I didn't expect to have that sort of emotional response to kind of leaving that 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 friendly ground force and saying, hey, we you know, we we got to go get we got to go get more fuel. And uh, looking at our calculations, 15 minute flight there, you know, maybe five minutes on the ground if we were moving quick and then 15 minutes back um, it's tough to tell them, Hey, we'll, we'll be back in, in a half hour. We hope everything's okay while we're gone. And that that was really tough, um, to be able to communicate. So, um, we went to Asadabad, ABAD as we called it and landed and, you know, every refuel that I had done at flight school, what do you do? You just, you sit in the helicopter. Uh, one person gets out, holds the fire extinguisher because safety is important while, you know, people come up and refuel your helicopter and it takes about 10 minutes. And, uh, and that's it. Um, my, my Sasha, you know, my right seat pilot said, get out now, start loading rockets. And that's not something I had ever been trained on. Um, so here I am 24 years old, six weeks out of flight school, uh, trying to, to load rockets as fast as I can out in the middle of Afghanistan, because I know that a friendly forces is in is in contact. Um, you know, something I haven't mentioned yet is and this is something for, for people who understand that the army is a small place, the, the voice on the ground, that friendly platoon leader is, is one of my classmates from West Point. It was uh, Lieutenant John Goodwill. And it's tough when you recognize the voice on the other end of the radio. And so, you know, loading rockets, I'm, I'm moving extra frantic because, you know, John's my, my buddy from school and he, he's in trouble and his guys are in trouble. So, um, it was just very surreal to find myself in that situation um, I guess so quickly
0: so I'm, I'm fascinated by a lot of aspects of this so so you load these rockets um, something that you hadn't really trained on doing uh, were you able to get back while the engagement was still going on?
1: yes we were able to come back um, by that time US force was had had essentially, um, linked up with the Afghan force that was up in the hillside. And, and then over the next, you know, four hours, honestly, John, it's, it's hard to apply a lot of detail here. Over the next four hours, we continued this cycle of U.S. force moving, uh, enemy engagement. We were moving in to engage. We would try to, you know, start with a decent amount of standoff, but we found ourselves, uh, our lead aircraft, you know, flying over the treetops, trying to identify, Enemy hunkered down behind rocks and trees, and um, you know moments where the the lead aircraft would engage would engage enemy positions, you know break uh, contact to come around to re-engage. and then uh, as we're engaging, we would break and take fire because the enemy knew that there wasn't anybody covering us as the trail aircraft, and um, I just you know we didn't fly with our doors, and I remember peeking out over my door and seeing. Uh, I just remember thinking about popcorn looked like popcorn coming off of the mountainside as we were breaking off of, of our engagement run. So that continued for another, another four hours engaging, um, you know, communicating with the friendly force, going to refuel, you know, loading, slinging more rockets into the pod, loading 50 cow, reporting back to our, our headquarters. Um, And eventually we were able to, um, you know, coordinate for, for some relief. We actually coordinated and requested the the next Apache team uh, mm-hmm. to to take off a little early, so they could come and uh, provide some more continuous some more continuous coverage. Um, around this time, probably uh, it's hard it's hard to put a time on it, but the Afghan force began to take uh, had taken some casualties, and um, there was a moment that that a U.S. Uh, one of our U.S. infantrymen. Uh, was actually critically wounded. And um, and so that was really, really hard to, you know, hear from the air, harder on the ground, undoubtedly, but it's, it's tough to, to hear that. Um, despite everything that we're doing from the air, there's, it, it, it doesn't seem like we're able to, to do enough. And um, so at that moment, you know, the most junior pilot in the flight, me, um, Sasha turns to me and he says, hey, we don't have time to mess around. I need you to call in medevac. I need you to get those Apaches here. I need you to call up field art, you know, the art, the fires, so howitzers to be able to come in and, and provide additional artillery support. So um, he put he put a lot of trust in me um, as he was trying to provide support to that lead aircraft. So I found myself, you know, calling the field artillery headquarters and and call, you know getting fire missions um, spooled up. Call, calling in apaches to do a battle handover and you know luckily enough there were moments in time where i didn't really know what to do because i'm you know new to this so i was writing everything down on my kneeboard every grid that we shot you know how many what we expended and i was you know i was keeping track of of kind of all of those targets and so fortunately when it was time to to pass off the battle, um, to the Apaches, you know, I was able to provide them 20 targets. I said, Hey, here, here are 20 known or suspected enemy locations. Um, and, and they were able to, uh, to come in and provide our relief, uh, after about eight hours, uh, of, of engagement. So, but, you know, at this point, the longest flight I'd ever flown on was probably two hours at flight school. And, um, uh, this was, you know, going on, going on eight hours. Um, but before those, those Apaches came in, they were still about 30 minutes out. Um, the medevac aircraft called that they were moving up the river. Uh, we reported that to the ground force who uh, you know said that the situation was pretty bad for that wounded soldier. And uh, at that point in time, we, we started talking as a flight and um, you know we, we actually decided as a flight that we were gonna land, uh, that our aircraft was actually gonna land And uh, that I was going to get kicked out and we were going to get that wounded soldier, put him in our aircraft and try to take him to the nearest field hospital. Um, We and I say this, say this lightly, I guess we made the mistake of asking for permission. Um, And I wish, you know, if I could go back and change it, we would have landed and tried to help help that soldier on the ground. Um, And but, you know, we kind of told our headquarters what we were going to do and they they denied that request. So. (laughs) Uh, at that point we were, you know, really low on fuel medevac was still about six minutes out and we had to break station, uh, because we weren't confident that we were going to be able to get to refuel without crashing. And so about three minutes, uh, south of that engagement area, we, you know, we saw the medevac with their trail Blackhawk uh, passing, moving up the river. And we told them, we said, Hey, it's, it's intense down there. You know, we're, we're going to be another 20 minutes. Um, you know, we can't provide you any cover. We're low on fuel. And they said, Hey, don't, doesn't matter. We're going to go in. And we obviously weren't there to observe it, but, um, that Metafact helicopter went in and hovered on the side of that mountain, taking fire and hoisted that soldier out, um, with nothing, you know, no weapons, no overhead cover, uh, for many other helicopters, um, taking rounds the entire time. And their, their bravery, um, they hoisted, hoisted that soldier out. Um, unfortunately, he passed um, as, they were, as they were landing at, the, um, at Asadabad before they could get him to a higher level of care. Uh, and that helicopter ended up having to land on, on a stack of mattresses, actually, back at Jabad because their rubber wheels had been shot out. Um, due to the intensity, of the engagement. So, um, I mean, just talking about selflessness, it, we we felt like we you know we were getting down in the dirt and you know putting rounds down and being shot at and feeling the thuds of our, our rockets hitting the mountain and you know you could feel it in your seat. But for that medevac crew to go in completely unarmed um, and and do that for for that soldier um, was just it's still something that's really powerful in my memory today.
0: So was that kind of the end of the engagement then for you guys?
1: Yeah, we, uh, I, I passed over a battle, you know, battle handover to, to a team of Apaches. Uh, and at that point, our, our, you know, our, the extension that we had put on our, our flight hours, uh, you, you can only fly so many hours without getting a certain level of approval to extend. We were coming up on, on that extension and, uh, we were more or less overdue, back at J Bad, And so we had to break contact and, uh, uh, go back to base, uh, knowing that the U S platoon was still kind of reconsolidating and trying to move, uh, move out of that kill zone with all those Afghan casualties, damaged vehicles, and so on. Um, and, and so, you know, at that point we, we kind of landed and, um, we, we put the aircraft to, to idle as part of the normal shutdown procedure. And, uh, we just kind of sat there, you know, usually it's about, it's about a two minute cool down for the aircraft before you can turn the engine off. And after about six or seven minutes, we all just got, we were just sitting there. Um, and it was, you know, it was exhausting. We were physically, emotionally um, exhausted. And, and, and I do remember feeling really selfish about that too, because, you know, we were in an aircraft, we were going back to a base. there are still our soldiers, our brothers out on the ground, um, still in the engagement so um, just a I guess the part of that this entire experience is I didn't know how emotionally um, taxing this combat experience would be and uh, it was really really overwhelming
0: yeah I, I want to ask you about that because you know you I, this whole time I'm thinking geez you know eight hours in an aircraft four times longer than you've ever spent in uh, you know flying uh, much longer than you're you know t- expected to be able to fly um, you know, during combat operations in Afghanistan. And you mentioned that it is emotionally draining. Um, you also, you know, you mentioned the, that it's a pretty emotional to have to come on the radio and say, hey, we're almost out of field. We got to leave you guys. We're going to be back in 30 minutes. Um, you know, good luck, essentially. How, how do you, you know, flying is a very, flying is a complex thing. Um, this is why there are so many processes in place and why you spend so much time in training, really getting those uh, processes down to, you know, almost muscle memory, how do you kind of balance, how do you keep that emotion from, from kind of almost overwhelming your ability to manage all of those processes and the the very sort of analytical and almost dispassionate, um, you know, mentality that sometimes is required to to fly in combat?
1: I think there there are two things that really help us. And I don't want to say suppress emotions, because to be honest, I think the the empathy and action the emotion the the care for the the soldier on the ground is what makes army aviation so special it's it is our emotion it is an appreciation for what those those soldiers are are doing in the situation that that it's in so i think it'd be a, a terrible thing if we were so over proceduralized that we were not able to use our you know emotion to to motivate us um but I think there are some, some things that, that help us. Um, first is we do have, we have a checklist for everything. We have a, um, a procedure that we train so well that even after an hour and a half of, you know, engaging a target, breaking right and turning into another hillside only to see that hillside open up, like, again, like, you know, with flashes of, of muzzle fire, um, you know, that, uh, even though you've just experienced that, as you're landing to go into the refuel point, you still have a checklist where you go through your your pre-landing, you know, your before landing checks, and and that's by memory. And then you you land and you go through you know s- those procedures. So so really, I think the procedures and the, the the training that we have allows us to fall back on you know doing the things we absolutely have to do to to safely employ the aircraft. I think the second thing we have going for us is as an army aviator, you're never alone. You know, we have a, we have a crew um, both in your aircraft and and the other aircraft that are flying. So even at moments where, you know, our lead aircraft is is talking about, you know, through pure selflessness, Hey, we're going to, we're going to get down there and we're going to put ourselves between the enemy and the ground force. We're going to put ourselves between that fire in an aluminum, you know, aluminum and plexiglass, little can no armor um, and you know there's a moment where we can say hey hey why don't you take a step back let's let's reevaluate so we always have a team that can help us um, not suppress but but effectively manage those some of those emotional responses some of that passion
0: you know one of the other things that's kind of stuck out to me um as I was listening to you is, you know, you mentioned that, you know, when you talk to family and friends, they sometimes maybe picture Afghanistan as being this kind of open, dry desert. Um, and parts of it are, you know, Southern Helmand province, Southern Kandahar province are very much these sort of dusty plains. This engagement happens there and it's over very quickly. It just kind of highlights the importance of terrain. You know, one of the fundamentals of, of you know, military science is understanding terrain because, Just the fact that there was so much elevation, which constricted the way that you guys could fly and the vegetation that offered cover and concealment to the enemy, which meant that instead of just having targets and, you know, prosecuting the targets essentially, uh, and then moving on mission over, this turned out to be an eight hour engagement that really in the end, probably, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but probably ended in kind of a dissatisfying way, um, because it, it was so difficult to actually see through to sort of, um, to completion so to speak
1: that that's right the the terrain in in kunar and much of rc east um it leaves things you know we talk about the fog of war it leaves things very foggy you, you go in on an engagement and you expend five rockets and uh or you, you you put down you know 200 rounds of 50 cal um and you don't know if it was effective you don't know if it was effective uh, because of the cover and concealment. Um, the other part about RC East that's very different is, you know, a lot of the, the fights in the South, um, you know, were, were largely, you know, the, the counter IED mission where you have a small team of enemy trying to emplace IEDs. Um, in in RC East, there were platoons of enemy trying to attack and, and confront platoons of, of friendly forces. And I think the scale of some of the enemy operations were surprising to me. You know, West Point from 2005 to 2009, we were training to, to run, you know, checkpoints and search vehicles in Iraq. You know, we were training to detect those teams of two or three, you know, bomb makers in a village. Um, we didn't. There wasn't a lot of training on how to how do you help a U.S. platoon of of thirty people fight an Afghan you know, or a Taliban platoon of of thirty people. Um, from a, from a dominant position. And so I think that was, that was really surprising.
0: So, you know, we ha- kind of highlighted this at the beginning of the, uh, or early in the episode that this was like your second day flying. Uh, and not only that, but you know, you had, you got to your first duty station and it was in the door and then out the door to Afghanistan. This is your second day flying. Did you feel, did you feel ready? Did you feel that, um, you know, that you, that the training that you had gotten had prepared you for what you confronted that day?
1: I think it, it, I, I did feel prepared. Um, I felt prepared in a way, though, that may not be, you know, how I thought I was going to prepare. Uh, I think um, I wanted to feel prepared to be, you know, a technical, tactical expert. You simply can't get that from flight school. It takes time, especially when you get to, you know, a deployment or your operating environment. You have to become very intimately familiar with it. And so when it comes to actually flying and fighting the aircraft, Um, I don't, I don't think I was prepared, you know, my learning curve was very, very quick, you know, after this engagement, uh, as I found out, you know, I talk about, oh, this flight was eight hours. It was a big deal for me only having flown two hours before. This is what my troop, this is what American aviators, this, this is what the fight had been for years. This was not an uncommon occurrence. It was, it was uncommon for me. And it was a little, maybe more intense than some of a typical day but um, you know, I don't think I was prepared as, as, in terms of being uh, a pilot. But what I do think West Point and what I do think flight school prepared me to do was be a great aviator. And there's a big distinction there. Uh, being an aviator is a lot more than just simply operating the flight controls or understanding you know, how to optimize a sight or a sensor, understanding how the weapons work. Being a great aviator is being a great teammate in the cockpit. Uh, being a great aviator is is having the trust in your in your warrant officers, having the trust in the re, you know the fuelers and the rearmament folks at the the refuel point, understanding that all of that has to come together to do something um, you know important for the ground force. So in terms of my skill as an aviator, that took you know that took some time, but the most important thing that I think I brought to that fight, the most important thing we brought to that fight was was our teamwork and our selflessness to do whatever we could for that ground force. And I th- again, I think that's what makes army aviation just entirely unique.
0: Well, Jordan, I think that that's a great point to, uh, to kind of wrap up on. I want to thank you again for taking some time to, uh, to, to share your story on the spear. Um, I think that there's some incredible lessons that can kind of be derived from it, uh, that are applicable both to, you know, aviators and, and, and prospective future aviators, but also, um, you know, much more broadly across the the army and the military more generally so thank you very much
1: thanks for your time john and um you know just a reminder you never know when you're going to find yourself in these situations so it's always important to take every opportunity you can to train
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the spear the spear is produced by the modern war institute at west point